CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarowski Show as I speak. It's Thursday, June 2nd, 2022. Here's a headline from the Chicago Sun-Times, home delivered as always. Like father, like son, Alderman Roderick Sawyer, the son of former Mayor Eugene Sawyer, joins growing field of challengers trying to unseat Lightfoot. Rod Sawyer, he said he was going to do it, folks, when he came on the show. He said, well, I bet I'm really thinking about it. I think I'm going to do it. Well, he's doing it. And uh, as one of, you know, I always tell people, if you're over the age of 55, got to be over 55, you remember fondly Eugene Sawyer. That's Rod Sawyer's father. So before anybody writes off Rod Sawyer, let me just say this. In a uh, Chicago election, you have to make the runoff. There's no one's going to get over 50%. In this so how do you get to the runoff? And Rod Sawyer is banking on the fact that people who are old or older are more likely to vote. And it's those older people, a lot older than my guest, that my distinguished guest who I'm about to bring on, a lot older than him, who fondly, my, I don't even think my guest was in grammar school when uh, Eugene Sawyer was mayor of the city of Chicago. Uh, he may have been just about to enter... Uh, high school over there, uh, but uh, barely, okay? I know it wasn't paying attention to politics, uh, but if you're 55 or over, definitely 60 or over, you have fond memories of Eugene Sawyer, and that will help my old friend, Rod Sawyer. I'm just saying that. All right, without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Troy LaRavier. I am a former Chicago public school principal um, and current president of the Chicago Principals and Administrators Association. And I also have a son in Chicago public schools. And I went to Chicago public schools and I taught in Chicago public schools. So that's been my life. And I was not in school. I was actually in the United States Navy and boot camp when Harold Washington died. I remember my company commander called us all together and announced that Harold had died. And so because I was in boot camp, I had no access to media whatsoever. So I saw and heard nothing about it other than that. 
And so by the time I got out of boot camp, all that was going to happen, it happened. And when Saw became mayor, I got shipped off to Portsmouth, uh, Virginia, to the USSS John F. Kennedy CV-67 aircraft carrier. So I have no fond memories of Sawyer because I was off in Virginia and then the Mediterranean Sea for six months. <laughs> so I am old enough, Ben, I just to have fond memories. I just don't have them because of my military service. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you can't see Troy LaRavier. He's got those boyish good looks. And that's why I just assumed. Uh, plus, for some reason, Troy, I have you in the 90s. But I realize, not to do too much of your, your biography, but I realize it's because you took time in between high school and college to, to be in the Navy. So you didn't go immediately from high school to college. And as a result, in the 90s, you were in college. Exactly. Do you follow what I just told you? That is correct. Uh, you were hanging around at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. Uh, and now, what? oh, God, this is a true test of my COVID-soaked brain. What high school did uh, Troy LaRavier graduate? And I know it. I can see it. It's on Michigan Avenue. Uh, it's where... Not quite close. Well, Not on Michigan. It's on King Drive. Oh, it's on King Drive. Excuse me. You can uh, see it from Michigan Avenue. Yes. And it's where... You uh, back up into Michigan Avenue. Jennifer Hudson but, went there as well. That's right. <laughs> I've done everything but name the high school. and Mr. I, Mr. T went there. <laughs> way before your time, Troy. Way before, yeah, before my time. <laughs> what high school was it again? I just can't remember. I want to uh, say... Paul it was, what's that? Paul Lawrence. Paul Dunbar. Lawrence Dunbar. Dunbar High School. How could I forget? Wow. Named for a poet. Little people, people don't know that it's named for a poet. I don't know how many high schools in the city of Chicago are named for a poet. All right. Um, uh, Troy, so much I want to talk to you about. Today's like memory day lane. We're going to get a lot of issues of the day. Uh, I'm uh, Troy, uh, I, as he said, uh, grew up in the city of Chicago, went to Chicago public schools, uh, graduated from Chicago public schools, was a teacher, a principal, now the head of the principal association. So he's got public schools in his blood. He understands schooling, he understands violence in a big city like Chicago. So I would love to get your thoughts on this notion that the Republicans are advancing, that the best thing you can do uh, for to deal with uh, gun violence is to arm teachers. Uh, and have armed guards at the front door. But the arming of the teachers is really uh, crazy. Uh, but before we get to that, I have to tell you, today's like a, a bizarre memory. I, I cut this deal with Troy to have him come on the show, and then the first thing that pops up on my uh, Facebook feed this morning when I woke up with, again, my COVID-soaked brain still a little out of it, uh, was a photograph from 2015. This day, 2015, me, Troy LaRavier, uh, my old uh, pal McDumkey, and the great Karen Lewis on stage at the hideout. And it was like overwhelming. I could feel Karen's presence. I love you. You know how much I loved her, uh, Troy. And I know uh, you and Karen, you had your own relationship, uh, which I would love to hear you talk about. But it just came back. Go ahead, Troy. Talk about it. So first, when you sent me that picture... Uh, I don't know how to describe the feeling I got. It was like, wow, just, I remember being on that stage. I remember the back and forth between she and I and the questions. And it was great. It was a really good night. 
And I'm I'm looking at the photograph, thinking just just seven years ago, I was sitting down with Karen Lewis, who seems was seemingly perfectly healthy at the time, her wit just as sharp as it always has been, and it, it's so hard to believe that like it's not hard to believe she's gone. It's hard to believe it happened so like 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 poof. <laughs> Uh, that's what it felt like. Like, like, like that should have been twenty years ago. Um, and in terms of our relationship, um, when I first came out, I'm pretty sure your audience, this, most of your audience by now, probably has no idea why, why you even have me on. <laughs> but you know, when Ron was mayor, um, I was the the one and only principal speaking out very publicly against his policies. And I, my opening salvo was an op-ed in the Sun Times that went basically viral. You know, like, like like half a million people read that thing over a weekend. It just got sent from person to person, from teacher to principal. And the first political figure to reach out to me after I sent wrote that op-ed uh, was Karen Lewis. Um, and. She, I remember her. I still have it in my Twitter account. The, 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 she actually reached to me, reached out to me through a Twitter message, like a DM, uh, and it was something like, "This is incredible." Basically, what I wrote, um, and she wanted to talk, um, and we never did get together to talk until your your op your show that night was the first time we actually got together to talk, and then we got together to talk after that when I ran for mayor. I was advised to talk to her. It was like, you should talk to Karen. She ran, she can give you. And this was when she was sick. Uh, and she had had the stroke. And she'd had the cancer. Um, and she invited me over to her home, uh, which was downtown at that point. And she sat and gave me like a two and a half hour lesson on, you know, lessons she had learned nav trying to navigate politics and the little time that she spent in the mayor's race. Um, so she was very generous with her time, her, her knowledge, uh, and, and, you know, I have nothing but fond memories of her. Now, as a principal, every now and then I would get a grievance letter with her name on it. <laughs> but, you know, that's due process. That's what, that's what that's for. You know, um, and none of those grievances were successful. So I was doing what I was supposed to be doing and she was doing what she was supposed to be doing in terms of filing the grievance to ensure that what that that my actions against her teachers were above board and the process worked. Uh, so I never had any um, I didn't have I remember the, one of the first times I met with her, she was like, Let me pull out my grievance files and see how many of my teachers have Father, complaint against you. I'm like, I'll tell you right now, it's at least three, and all of them failed. <laughs> uh, but you know, we had that sort of, you know, contentious piece in terms of her role to serve teachers, my role to serve principals, and then we had the unifying piece because most relationships between teachers and principals are not contentious. Most times, when teachers, when principals, when schools uh, are have budget cuts. Teachers are opposed to them, and principals are opposed to them. When class size has to be uh, increased, principals are opposed to it, teachers are opposed to it. This over-testing, most principals are opposed to it, most teachers. So 90% of the issues, you know, we agree on, and then those times when we don't, we, we she serves her role, and I serve mine. Same thing with Jesse Sharkey, and I imagine, 
Uh, it'll be the same with Stacy. Um, now, I would say there's some things happening, this, and I don't want to get divisive here. There, there's, there's some things outside of due process that CTU members have been engaged in. I don't know how much support they have from CTU leadership that you know are troublesome. Uh, I'll say that that, and I'll address it. Anything else I have to say, I'll directly, I'll address it directly with CTU leadership. <laughs> okay. Wow, Dan, just leave that one hanging out there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's introduce that topic and then say, don't ask me a follow-up question on it, ladies and gentlemen. That is a uh, that, that's, no, that's. I have to say that because I know my members might be listening, right? And they'll I go, see. yeah, blah, 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 due process. And I know they know that there's some other things happening behind the scene. And damn it, Troy doesn't seem, no, nah, I want you all to know. <laughs> I know. Okay. And, you know, those things have to get addressed. Yeah, that's like the business side of the relationship. Uh, and that, and, and, and you're absolutely correct. Uh, Karen, uh, my memory of it, uh, she began our show at the hideout by say, making the wise crack about looking into your file and having seen how many grievances have been, uh, uh, yeah. and that let everybody know that politically you may be on the same page, but he's still a principal and I'm still the head of the Chicago teachers union. And I just want everybody to understand that dynamic. And then once we agreed and understood away, we went, uh, and it was a, a, a wonderful night. I got so many pictures in my own phone, of you and John Lewis, uh, Karen's husband, you and Karen, and so it was a really special night for me. Uh, they you know her husband What's was that? a mighty man from Dunbar, too. Yes, sir. Yes, he was. Uh, he was yep. a Dunbar uh, alumna. Yes, he is. Uh, and I, I tend to think of him as Lane Tech, because for years uh, he was the uh, a driver's ed instructor at Lane Tech, and for years he was the basketball coach at Lane. That's when I met him. John, Coach Lewis, uh, with the basketball coach at Lane Tech. Everybody knows I'm a diehard basketball fan. Hell of a basketball coach. Uh, like, it's easy. Uh, uh, let me amend that. If you have great players, your team will probably make it to the Final Four in the city. To get to the Final Four with not great players, with just like, well, players that are really good, but more likely playing really well together and overachieving. That's John Lewis. So shout out to Coach John Lewis, great coach. Um, all right, let's. Uh, I'm going to resist the temptation to re uh, talk to talk about the history of that essay you wrote, which opened my eyes too. I immediately I was I called you up right away. I uh, let's go have a coffee. Troy, I'd never seen an essay remotely resembling anything like that. The one he used, uh, Troy alluded to, it was in the bright one, the Sun Times. Ever from a Chicago public school principal ever. I was like, whoa, I gotta meet this guy. Uh, so okay, here we are, 2022. There's madness uh in the landscape. Uh folks, you should know this. Uh whatever Troy has to say uh are his political beliefs. So don't hold any principal in Chicago accountable. I'm just gonna say that up front because Troy is a man of strong political uh, convictions and beliefs. Uh, there's utter madness in the country today, in my humble opinion, uh, Troy, that's been reflected in many, many ways. One of which is this bizarre worship of guns uh, that the Republican Party, that MAGA uh, has. Uh, the guns can do no wrong. Happiness is a warm gun. Bang, bang, shoot, shoot. I mean, it's right out of a Beatles song. Uh, we just saw it on display. 19 people killed at a public school in Texas. Uh, and the Republicans' response is <laughs> what we should do is arm teachers. And that's not take away guns, not have more controls on the sale of uh, weaponry, but arm teachers so that the next time 
uh, a lunatic comes in uh, brandishing a rifle, the teacher can just shoot him dead. And that ends that. Go back to their history class. And that seems to be MAGA's attitude about what went down uh, in Texas. The floor is yours, Troy. Your thoughts. Uh, wow. Where am I going to go with this? There's so many places. Okay, there's two at least I can think of, and I'll start with, I'll start with the second. Um, I think, all right, we already have a teacher shortage. <laughs> all right. Who the hell's going to want, who the hell's going to want to teach if they have to have firearms training, right? And then there's the details, right? Do I wear this on my side? When I'm, t when I'm going through the class, do I walk through the classroom up and down the aisle with a gun on my side or do I have it locked away somewhere? And if I have it locked away somewhere, then it sort of challenged the original point of having it. Um, the other piece is, you know, they tried, they, well, well, they, before they said, you know, you need an armed guard. Well, there was an armed guard. I think we've, people have said this a million times. There was an armed guard there. You know, the problem with that whole philosophy is that no matter whether you have someone armed or not, they are at a disadvantage and they are 999 times out of a thousand going to lose because the person who's coming in with an intent to kill has a one-up on anybody who's armed in that school and that's, that's that they know they're coming in with the intent to kill, right? So the person who's got the gun has seen a thousand, a thousand people come and go. Right, and they have no idea when you walk in that you're that one. Do we want them to be on edge with their hand on their gun when everybody walks through? No, you know. But even it, so, so when that person who has the intent to kill walks in, he's automatically got the advantage. He's gonna pull out his gun, and it's the first to draw. Nine hundred ninety-nine times out of a thousand is gonna win. All right. So the idea of giving them a gun, you'd have to also give them ESP. You'd also have to give them clairvoyance. So I know that this is the one, <laughs> right? You giving them the weapon is not going to work. Like taking the out, taking the gun out of the hands of the potential assailant doesn't have those issues. And so, which brings me to um, actually the third point, which is this is completely against other basic tenets of the so-called Republican platform, which they violate all the time when they when they feel like it anyway. But it's this is some big government shit, right? This is big government, right? You have one one is big government and it's a whole lot of money. Right? You have a policy that costs virtually no money, which is to just give a background check so an idiot or a crazy person or someone who's having some serious emotional mental issues does not pick up a gun. I'll bake now that's government that's some government interference too, but it's pretty light. It's targeted <laughs> at specific people who might be likely to do some stuff like this, right? And you, you want to say no to this sort of minor government um, involvement, and then create this huge major government that forces every every teacher in the United States to put a, to, to wear a gun in a profession. They didn't choose a profession that they didn't go into teaching wanting to wear one, and many probably don't, but you're going to force it on them. Um, and then the expense of the training and the equipping of these folks would be far more. So that violates some basic so-called tenets of the Republican platform in terms of big government and big spending. 
and and they want to do it in lieu of something that's less government and less spending. Make up your goddamn minds, Republicans. What do you want to be? Right? You know, you want to be whatever's politically advantageous in the moment. And you know, in the moment for them, they have to you know um, reinforce their message to their base. We're not gonna give up. <laughs> you know, even though even though. The situation is definitely calling for it, even though this particular situation has shot all kind of holes in our armed guard theory. You know, we're going to double down on some other element of the we have to have more guns and not less. And this is just so insane when you just think about what it's an alternative to, like just stopping people who have obvious indicators from buying a gun. Not stopping everybody. Just stopping people who have obvious indicators that they might engage in this behavior. Like, that's what... Instead of doing that, you want to put a gun in the hands of hundreds of thousands of teachers across the country. And then, of course, there's a safety issue with that. You know, what happens when you you break up a fight as a teacher? And, you, and some angry students right there. And you got that gun right there. Um, I mean, I could go on and on, but I think that's enough to make the, the, the average reasonable person say, you know what, when you think about those things, when you think about what teachers go, when you think about the teacher shortage, when you think about all the money and training that will go into that, when you think about what this proposal is in lieu of, this basic, simple process of background checks, it doesn't make any damn sense. Um... If your goal is to protect people, it makes sense if your goal is to show up your base and win elections. All right. And to that point, let me say this. One of the things I find so frightening about where we are right now uh, as a country in politics, and I'm going to paraphrase what you just said, uh, after laying out the utter absurdity of the Republican argument, after laying out the utter inconsistency of the Republican argument, it's, it's a hypocrisy. Uh, which undercuts everything they supposedly believe in. After effectively doing all that, you came to the conclusion that all that's enough to make the average reasonable person say, that doesn't make any damn sense. But the reality, the frightening reality, is, seems to be just the opposite, Troy. The party that advocates arming teachers and is too chicken to do a damn thing about regulating the sale of guns is the one favored to win the election and seize control of Congress and the Senate. And they already control the Supreme Court. And this is why I tell people in the, in, in the state of Illinois, you got to wake up, people. This country is insane. You just pointed out so effectively, Troy, how absurd the Republican argument is, and yet they're favored to be the winning party. I need help with this, Troy. I need to understand where our country is at right now. Go ahead. But, you know, people are not voting based on that issue. There's very few people who vote based on the gun issue. You know, they're favored, from what I understand, and I have to tell you, Ben, I have been recklessly absent from any news, <laughs> any consumption of news for, like, well, quite a while. However, my understanding of what's happening in this election, from the little news I have watched, in terms of why they're favored, it's this whole culture wars crap. You know, it's this sort of identity politics. It's they've been very successful in digging up 
the 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 ghost, the the monster, the threat, the fear around race-related issues with white people. Right? That's why they're favored to win the election. They've gone back, they have gone back to the old, you know, the one that comes through for them all the time. You know, they know they've implanted all these racial biases and fears that stoked them for centuries, and they're always there, ready to be uh, capitalized on. Um, so, you know, I don't, I, I hear your point, <laughs> like, they, they, they're going to be, the party favored to do that is going to win, which shows that people are not thinking about that when they're voting. Right? They're thinking about, in fact, they're being led and guided by, frankly, their fears. Their unreasonable, irrational uh, fears of people of color and whatever people of color they think people of color are going to do to sort of supplant them or threaten their status as whatever the hell they think they are in this country. Um, completely ignoring the fact that the people who are stoking those fears are screwing them over more than any person of color will ever screw them over. And if they united with those people of color, then we could both turn and, and stop all of us from being screwed over. But, you know, that's not how the mass media works. That's not the typical message they get. They get a completely different message, and the Republicans are capitalizing on that message of not just racial division, but sexist division, um, sort of gender identity, and the so-called fears that are being stoked around around um, issues of he, he, she, her, and him, <laughs> um, they, are, they are capitalizing on it quite well. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you another example of the absurdity of it all, and I agree with you, by the way. We have talked about this in the past, and I urge everybody to check out. Uh, we did a show about critical race. We didn't even start to do the show about critical race theory. Somehow or other. We it, did. Uh, <laughs> we <and> did. <laughs> we didn't. We ended up. It was a hell of a show. Uh, and I urge everybody to go check that show out. Uh, it was a while back. So there's an essay in the Sun-Times today. And uh, Troy, I read. I, I always say this to people. If they put it in the paper, I'll give it a shot. I'll start it. See what they got. You know, maybe I can learn something from this guy. You know, these right-wingers, these MAGA types, uh, or centrist Democrats. Maybe they got something they could teach me. I'm open-minded enough to think I, I can learn. You know, I may be old, but I don't know everything. And uh, so there's this gentleman named Jacob Sullum, and he's a liber, uh, libertarian, which I could go on and on about libertarians, but just hold off on that. Uh, as such, he's very concerned about anything remotely resembling a governmental regulation guarding the sale of guns. This is the issue that rings his bell. So here he is weighing in on, uh, this is on the Sun-Times. Here, I'll, show, I'll just share this with uh, Troy so he knows I'm not crazy. This is in a newspaper in Chicago that this ran. Uh, this gentleman, Jacob Sullen, wrote. Uh, he's talking about, he also hates taxes. It's really what libertarians, uh, Troy, I'm just going to put this out here. All they do is hate taxes. They'll come up with any old reason why they're so cheap they don't want to spend any money in taxes. Um, so uh, he says, before concluding that the answer to our problems is more money, policymakers should take a breath and consider the magnitude of the danger they are trying to address. In a country with more than 130,000 K-12 to schools, the risk that any particular school will experience an attack is infinitesimal. As researchers note, 40 times as many children die in pool drownings every year 
than are killed with firearms in schools, which remain one of the safest environments for children. I have many feelings when I read that comment in the Chicago Sun-Times, a city where there was uh, carnage going on all the time that we're confronting. But you, again, as a person who went to Chicago public schools, taught there, as a principal there, and now the leader of the Principal Association, when you hear someone says it's more dangerous to be in a swimming pool than to get shot in a public school, what's your thought? Um... Well, he didn't say it's more dangerous. Well, maybe he did. He just said more people die. More kids die in swimming pools. That's probably a fact. Yes, 40 times as many children die in pool drownings each year than are killed with firearms. It's, it's, a, false, it's a false argument. It's like, you, like, what's your point? Because more people die in swimming pools, I can't stop people from getting killed in schools? I, I don't see your point. <laughs> like, people die for 500 different reasons, and... Let's try to address as many of them as possible. <laughs> uh, and this is one of them. So thank you for your data, but we still need to stop kids from getting mowed down in schools, however common or uncommon it is, you know. Um, so I don't know what else to say besides that. Um, you know, I just go back to this idea, going back to this idea of, I know this isn't his idea, or maybe it is, this of arming teachers. I, after I finished talking, I, I tried to imagine myself as a teacher with a gun in the classroom. And I just can't. There's no way in hell <laughs> I'm going to walk around a classroom. So then, like, it's like, what kind of people do you have to recruit into teaching? <laughs> Who will accept that? Like, are these the people you really want teaching your kids? Because... <laughs> I wouldn't want someone who wants to carry a gun in school to be teaching my son. And I'd imagine most people don't. So I'm sorry, that, that was like an afterthought to the previous question, but I just had to get that thought out there because when I thought about it, like, oh, there's no way in hell I would do that as a teacher. Like, I'd have to find another profession. And then someone would have had to take my place who would do that crazy shit. Um, and I don't want that person with kids. Just the notion, I don't want to belabor this, but bringing guns into a classroom, <laughs> it just it is the, the most ludicrous just recommendation I can possibly imagine. Just the fights that happen in classrooms all the time. Not, not even physical fights, just the tension in the classroom. You know, words back and forth between different kids. The teacher and the kids, you know how it goes in the classroom. Anything can happen in any given day. And just, well, let's put a gun in the middle of all that. That, that makes uh, absolutely Yeah, and the sense. wrong white teacher with the wrong black kid. Shit. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I, like, I don't know who else is bringing that up. But the wrong white teacher with the wrong black kid. Um. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely. Let's not even think about it. Let's just move on. I think the best way to deal with that is just to keep going back to the alternative. How about we just continue? Because the more you talk about it, the more the more time you're not talking about sensible laws controlling who has access to automatic weapons. <laughs> like, like, you just have to keep going back to that. It's simple. It needs to get done.
the other refrain uh, that's incorporated in this uh, gentleman's essay that I just alluded to is the fact that you can't throw money at a problem, which is something uh, that I hear Republicans have been saying my whole life, not just this current MAGA bunch. You can't throw money at a problem, which is completely contradicted by uh, capitalism, which is always throwing money at wealthy people to do whatever they want, whether they have problems or not. Uh, and then when they do have problems, they're usually getting bailed out by the government. So it's, again, another uh, contradiction there, Troy. Uh, but I told you about this earlier before we went to the show, and uh, this is an age-old problem in the city of Chicago, the lack of money uh, in our schools. And there was just an article in the Tribune about a, 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 well, a relatively well-to-do school in the north side of Chicago called Coonley, uh, which, when I say it's well-to-do, the parents are relatively well-to-do. They uh, live in the 47th Ward, the north side of Chicago. Uh, it's probably one of the wealthier uh, parent base. Uh, the article talked about how there's, because of budget cuts at the Board of Education, they're going to have to let go of this award-winning librarian. There's no money for a librarian, even in one of the wealthiest schools in the city of Chicago. I don't know, maybe they'll pass the hat. Troy, you know they do that on the north side or wealthier schools, and they come up with money to supplement the amount they get which is really not fair to the system as a whole. But, Troy, here we are, uh, seven years into our friendship, our relationship, talking about issues like this, and it seems like nothing has changed. When we got together for the first time, we were talking about no money in the public schools for librarians, no money in the public schools for toilet paper. Remember though, remember that fight, Troy? When, uh, and uh, so help, help me out here. Um, is it as dire as I think it is, where they don't have enough money even at the wealthier schools on the north side for librarians? Is it as bad as it was when you first wrote that essay? So let me do a wide view and then start zooming in here, provide quite a bit of context here. So you're saying it's the same conversation. It's the same conversation because the same people are running the district. You know, the think tanks and the, what is it, the, the civic committee, the Chicago Fund for Education, which board consists of the wealthiest of the wealthy, the bankers, Ronner was on that thing at one point. These people determine CPS policy. They determine where money will and won't go. The mayors align perfectly with them all. Um, and most importantly, the people who are in the board doing the grunt work or the sort of the management the CEO, the chief operating officer, financial officer, all in line with this, right? So that same group of interests has been running the city. When that group of interests uh, really took hold, probably under Arnie Duncan, and then they ramped it up under uh, when, when Emmanuel came in and he put his CEOs in. This basic philosophy of diverting educational resources to banks and corporations and for-profit companies. That's, they, CPS back then was a $5.4 billion enterprise. And these private institutions said, hey, how do we get our hands on some of that? Well, we need control of this district. And so they got, they got somehow a daily let them in, and then Ron gave them the keys, right? And so policy after policy that steers public money for schools. And I, you talk about this through the TIFs all the time, but I'm not even talking about TIFs. I'm talking about money that's actually still in the hands of the Board of Education that never was diverted through a TIF. 
is being diverted within the Board of Education. You know, we have famous examples like soups, where there was the bribery scheme. We have this multi-billion dollar, um, billion dollar uh, uh, deals with these uh, custodial management companies that leave the schools filthy but get to keep making their profits. Um, we have the loans from the banks many of which were illegal that the district could sue them for because they misrepresented some of the terms of them, but of course they won't sue them because the district is ran for them. It is ran to make them profit. And I think one of the biggest statistics here in relationship to what we're dealing with right now, so that group of interest still runs the district and money is still being diverted to them. Think about this. 2016, my last year as a principal, the district had a $5.4 billion budget. $5.4 billion, almost 400,000 students. Anywhere between 380 and 390. I want you to hear that. I'm going to repeat it. $5.4 billion and anywhere in about 300, let's say 385,000 students. Now, before I fast forward to 2022, let's think about this argument when they cut these school budgets. They often say, well, your enrollment is going down. And so we're going to slash your budget because you don't have as many students. Enrollment is going down. Now, often they slash budgets even when enrollment doesn't go down. But that's part of their logic, right? Now, never mind that the per amount per pupil is insufficient in the first place. So even though, you know, theoretically, if enrollment goes down, budgets should go down to some degree. Unless, of course, the per pupil amount is inadequate in the first place, right? But that's another topic. So, but the language is, Roman goes down, budget should go down. Now, let's go back to my stat, my district stat. 385,000 kids, give or take five grand, in 2016, $5.4 billion budget. Now the district has $330,000 kids. Three, excuse me, 330,000 kids. They went from 380 or so, to 300, they lost 50,000 kids. And now they have a $9.5 billion budget. So when a school loses kids, their budget goes down. But when the district loses kids, their budget went up by $4 billion. What in the hell are they doing with that money? That's the question that needs to get asked over and over again. That stat needs to be cited. $5.4 billion budget with 380,000 kids and now a $9.3 billion budget with 330,000 kids. What is, the, what is the district doing with that money? First of all, it goes against your refrain about schools. Well, if the enrollment goes down, your budget should go down. Well, your enrollment is going down by 50 grand, but, the expense, but your budget is up by $4 billion, almost double. What in the hell is going on? I guarantee you... That money is being uh, diverted to the interest, the wealthy interest served by our mayor, served by our school district, served by the Chicago Fund for Education, served by the Civic Committee. That's what's happening. But again, you know, people have to like that's the that's the conversation missing from every analysis I've ever seen. They just sort of let the district keep talking that smack about your enrollment going down without questioning the district about its enrollment, and yet the budget is going up. Now, of course, expenses have gone up, but I know salaries haven't gone up by $4 billion.
right? <laughs> and that gets, let's take it back to schools. Part of why schools are cutting so many staff, so the, the, the district will say, hey, well, uh, at, let's say a school has a $2 million budget. And the district gives them an extra $100,000 this year. They say, well, we didn't cut their budget. We gave them an extra $100,000. Well, actually, because of your contract with CTU, teacher salaries at that school have gone up by $300,000. But you gave them only $100,000 to make up for three. So now they can only afford one position and not the one of the three positions. So they have to cut the two. Those two people serve kids. Those two people serve students, and now those students won't get the services that those educators gave them. That's a cut. Even though it looks like the budget went up, when you think about it in pure terms of money, but education is not a money enterprise. Education is a service enterprise, and because you did not increase the budget in accordance with the cost of the service, you have to cut those services from students. That's what's going on all across the district. Services are being cut, even though it looks like budgets are not in some places. In other places, it looks like budgets are being cut, but it doesn't show the degree. So it'll look like a school has a $100,000 budget cut. But when you think about the fact that they did not, with that the increased cost in staff, they may have to cut $400,000, $500,000 in staff because the district did not make up that increased cost. So over the years, you know, when I go back to the district in terms of the $5.4 billion to a nine-point-something billion dollars, certainly part of that has to be for increased staffing costs across the district. But again, staffing costs have not gone up by $4 billion. Absolutely. That was a great, great riff. I hadn't thought of that. And so thank you for uh, putting that in my brain. Uh, and I'm absorbing that knowledge that you just gave me right now. Had not thought about it. The light just went on. That I'll just repeat that, uh, folks, for those people uh, paying attention at home and taking notes. There were, in 2015, uh, when uh, Troy and I uh, first were getting together and talking about these issues, there were 385,000 kids in the schools. They're now 330. So they've lost 55,000 kids. And yet the budget has gone from five. Point four billion to nine point five billion. The budget went up four billion dollars, even though the number of kids went down uh, fifty thousand. And schools across the city, they get their money from the board in terms of an allowance that's based on the kids in their school. So they're getting cut. And now I know, I know the propagandists for the mayor will spin it by going, oh, "Ben, it's your beloved Chicago Teachers Union. We had to pay him more money, like they wanted to work for less." But as Troy pointed out, you and it's probably not hard to do, Troy. I know there's some smart kid, probably a public school graduate, who could figure this out. Like how much it's like an algebra problem. Find X, and X is the extra amount of money you gotta pay the teachers with the increase based on the 2019 negotiations. And I guarantee you it will not equal four point one billion with a B dollars. So where oh, is that I'm money? Go ahead. I've actually this morning filed the Freedom of Information Act to get those numbers. How much total salaries, how much in total compensation, not just teachers, but everyone in the district has made uh, over the last 11 years. And so I will have, unless they do 
what they often do sometimes, which is try to deny the FOIA request on some BS technicality, and then we have to threaten to sue them to get the information. Um, I expect to have the answer to that within a month. So let me ask you a follow-up question based on the fact that you have about the FOIA. So I just we're going to leave for a moment that math problem, and uh, I'm going to invite Troy back to the show when he gets the information, if he gets the information, and we'll give you the answer to the math problem. We'll find X, ladies and gentlemen, and all you algebra teachers out there in the Chicago Public Schools who are listening to this, this could be a problem. You could work it out on the board with your students uh, if you want to get fired by the Board of Education. Uh, and all right, uh, so let's get to something that I always just, I shake, gotta shake my head. What, the, what a weird city I have chosen to, to live in. And this has to do with the hostility. The hostility between uh, the, uh, the people who run this city and the teachers. Or in this case, the uh, principals. And this has changed because under Rom, the part of the uh, propaganda that Rom put out there in that first strike back in 2012 with uh, Karen Lewis is that he was at the end when he couldn't come up with any other reason for why uh, he was uh, had forced this strike. Uh, he said, I'm doing it for principles and principal empowerment, which I had to laugh out loud because never been a empowered principal in this system until Troy LaRavie and his uh, uh, came out. But we, if, here it is, the head of the Chicago Principals Association, ladies and gentlemen, has to file a Freedom of Information Act request, which will probably get turned down, which will probably end in litigation if, if they do turn it down, to get the most basic of financial information that should be publicly available to absolutely anyone should be easily found on their website. That is a level of dysfunctional hostility toward the principles that, in my opinion, is unacceptable in the city of Chicago. So talk a little bit about that, Troy. Like, I understand, we are now, the mayor and her cronies who run the public schools are fighting with the teachers and they're fighting with the principals. How is that an acceptable way to run a system? Go ahead. So this thing you said earlier about the hostility to teachers, I think what we have to understand is it's not just the hostility to teachers. Like, there's an agenda. Like, wealth has control of our city, and they have an agenda. And they've, and they've done this in other cities. It's not just Chicago. Baltimore, they've done this. Uh, you name it. If they get control of a city, they do this. So, for example, one of the things that they do is... Uh, they go in and try to privatize um, many public entities and public jobs so that, you know, like custodians. They did that, you know, we know they privatized custodians here. They did it, again, like in Baltimore. Like, and part of the goal is to reduce the quality of life and the ultimate amount of money that that public institution has to spend on those services so that they can then take out some ridiculous loan, and then spend public money paying back the interest on that loan to banks. Or enrich some private corporation who would then provide you know, the, the, the replacement services for what used to be a public, uh, what used to be a publicly provided service. Right? This is how they do. Uh, another element of it is attacking public sector unions. 
right? That's what they do wherever, like he, like it's a, it's like Alec, right? We know about Alec everywhere they they in state legislatures. It's like Alec on a on a city level, on a municipal level. Everywhere Alec goes, they go with an agenda to try and get certain anti-labor, pro-wealthy uh, parasite legislation <laughs> passed in state legislature after state legislature. Well, the same group of interests, you know, they, they're not stopping at state legislatures. If they can get control of a municipal government and deflect as much or, or um, not deflect, but the, what's the word I'm looking for? I've used it three times today. Now I can't remember, remember it. But basically, um, divert uh, public resources uh, toward private ends and private wealth, and that's what they're going to do. We have to understand, Chicago, $9.3 billion budget? You think a wealthy corporation is going to look at that and go, oh, wow, they just have a $9.3 billion budget. That's great. I hope they spend it on wonderful services for the public. No, <laughs> that's a source of profit. And they're going to come up with every scheme they can possibly come up with to get as much of that $9.3 billion as possible. And that starts at the top with controlling the mayor's office or controlling the school board, controlling the city council or the majority on the city council so that they can make decisions to divert that money towards them. That's how it works all across. So that's what they were. These people were running the district seven years ago, 11 years ago, running the city back then, and they're still running the city, which is why we're still having the same conversation. You know, and their agenda won't change. Um, we have to we have to expel them from power. All right. Well, that's a, a topic for another day. Uh, we do have a mayoral's uh, mayor race coming up. Uh, the last time we had one, uh, Troy was uh, seriously considering running. Uh, obviously, you're not going to be running this time around unless you're really keeping a secret from me. Uh, but there will be other candidates. Uh, and uh, we had that moment, Troy. You articulated these, issue, these uh, issues and themes. Karen Lewis did. Uh, and it just didn't work out for the city of Chicago in either campaign for a bunch of reasons. Uh, but, you know, if I didn't remain hopeful, <laughs> what's the alternative, Troy? You understand what I'm saying? Uh, I don't remain um, it Was that a rhetorical? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking for an answer to that Yeah, one. The give me the answer. Right? The alternative to what? Yeah. <laughs> what <are> we... <laughs> Giving up all hope and just letting the ROMs of the world win. Uh, you know, hope is acting um, today on behalf of a, a future that does not yet exist. Um, so, you know, I'd imagine that's why you do this show. You, you think it can have an impact. It's why I do the work. Exactly why I'm not running for mayor. I think that the work I do as president of the Principals Association has potential to have far more impact in the long run than holding public office. And so... It's why I'm doing the work I'm doing. Um, so I certainly believe that there are things I can do today that can change the way the world will work tomorrow, 10 years from now, 50 years from now. I can't, you know, I have to do them in concert with a lot of other people. So there's a lot of organizing that has to happen. Um, and I have to figure out that work and connect with the right people. And, you know, step by step, I think I'm doing it. We'll see. All right. Very good. And that's a, a good a spot as all uh, any to leave uh, this conversation. I'm going to close uh, with something completely unrelated that I've been uh, meaning to tell you all day. And um, and so uh, 
people who've listened to this show know that Troy's a huge fan of music. Uh, they also know he's younger than me, so it's a different generation than me. Uh, most of the music, I stopped listening to new music in about 1979, and I've been listening to the same old music ever since. Uh, Troy is much more progressive, and he listens to current music, etc. But he's booted in a certain time himself. And this is my long-winded way of saying, I was talking to DJ Nate before the show, and DJ Nate, who produces the, uh, the weekend uh, Ben Jarofsky interviews, is a DJ, as the name says, and he blew my mind with this one. So he's a millennial. you got to understand, he's a young man. He told me, Troy LaRavier, that he does a lot of DJ sets. The hottest music uh, that is being played for millennials and Zs is house music. I almost fell out of my chair. I go, wait a minute, like Frankie Knuckles? Like 1978? <laughs> like <laughs> that kind of music? He said, I, yes. I, I, I'm like, I got to tell this to Troy because I knew you were coming on. Troy, house music is popular. Um, ben, <laughs> I live in a world where house music never dies. <laughs> so I am so not shocked by that at all. <laughs> Um, I, I live, particularly with a lot of this, this gender fluidity happening now, you know, house, house disco has always been the background soundtrack to that world. And now that that world has sort of come up into its own, I would imagine that, uh, it has fueled sort of this, this interest in, in the culture where, you know, house music is played quite a bit. Um, so I'm not shocked at all. You know, and I, you know, I, I came of age, you know, my high school years from 83 to 87 were the nexus of like when house was house, like, like when it was born and, and flourished, when it had its golden age. Um, and so, you know, I was never at the clubs, but, you know, I would listen to WBMX, um, the Hot Mix 5. <laughs> Uh, quite a bit. And in my world, you know, plus, particularly with black people and black women, house music is always around. <laughs> so it's never left my life. As long as I'm around, as long as I'm around a black woman, there's house music somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I hear you, Troy. I, uh, I, I hear you. Uh, I, I, I feel the same way about disco, which, uh, like, evolved in the house music. And, uh, you know, but to me, I don't. I love disco music. What can I tell you, Troy? I never ended as far as I was concerned. I loved it in the '70s. I love it in the uh, 2022. I listen to it all the time. I hear it on the radio. I'm like, oh, that brings me back. <laughs> but I, uh, I, I, I told DJ Nate that I went to one house party, like house music party. It was a jamboree. It was in Jackson Park. I swear to God, there were 50,000 people there. 50. I mean, it were so many people. And, this, and the DJs were playing this music. And I told him this. I told DJ Nate this. The part, this was right after Michael Jackson had died. And they played, they interrupted the house music uh, uh, to play um, Never Can Say Goodbye. There were 50,000 people singing that word song word for word, Troy LaRavier. I'm like, I had tears in my eyes. You know, it was... It was like all oh, the music from one generation flowing into the next generation, you know, and they were just. Dude, let me tell you something. My son, who was now a freshman in high school, uh, who hardly ever listened to music, he grew up with me and his mother. And we typically, I'm hip hop. His mother's R&B. 
right? I'm hip hop, R&B, some classic rock. Uh, I introduced him to m almost everything I, I know. He played my music around him. He just up and decides maybe five months ago that he, he, he likes Nirvana. And I played Nirvana when I was, some Nirvana when I was, you know, when he was younger. And then he goes into Nirvana and he starts listening to Alice in Chains. And then he goes and he's like, Dad, I, I really like the guitar. And he gets into Black Sabbath. And he really loves um, Tony Iommi, the guitarist of Black Sabbath. He's become, he's like, Dad, I want to learn to play guitar. So I buy him a guitar and I put him in a school of rock. Right? And one day he's playing this Black Sabbath album. I've never listened to Black Sabbath my whole life. I listened to classic rock, but I never got into Sabbath. Don't know. All I knew is Ozzy Osbourne was, you know, part of that whole crew. That's all I knew about Black Sabbath. And he's playing these albums, and I'm like, oh, I'm listening to song after song. I'm like, damn, this is good. Damn, this is good. Damn, this is good. <laughs> and then I'm like, dude, when did this album come out? Yeah. And he says 1970. And so I'm born in 1970. I said, what month did it come out? He says February. First of all, he knows what month it come, came out and year. I'm like, what the hell? But then I go, I can't believe this. My son is introducing me to music that came out before I was born. <laughs> that's beautiful. And now he's a metalhead. Well, that's, that's wild. And Metallica, I, Sabbath. Wow. It'll evolve into something else. But I'll tell him this. I urge you, if you have guys who haven't done this already, father-son thing, check out uh, a movie called Passing Strange. It's a it's a movie that Spike Lee directed of a film of a of a uh, a show uh, by Stu, this uh, a black man guitarist who just fell in love with hard rock and went to Germany to discover himself. And it's a great it's a great uh, show. Uh, and as as a metalhead, he'll really I think I get a kick out of it. Yeah, but you made that comment about music going from one generation to the next, and that just reminded me of my son in this 1970s Good. hard rock metal. <laughs> I can't wait till your son suddenly discovers what from 1970, like uh, uh, Charles Erlen or some some great like jazz guy. Dad, you gotta maybe that'll happen next, and I'll be loving that. Uh, we'll, our, see. we'll see. Uh, Troy Laravier, thank you very much. Uh, we could probably talk for another two hours. We both have the gift of gab. And I'm just going to make it a lot sooner when you come back on the show, all right? Always love to be here, brother. All right. That's a great Troy LaRavier. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Take care.